Republican, even when it is meant as a compliment. I worry that the act might be getting a little tired for a man of my years. Better for old men to be known as collegial team players who expect to find in the warmth of their associations a tonic for fears of approaching infirmity and extinction. Beyond the question of appearances, I doubt my maverick reputation will give me much comfort when I have left the public arena. I learned in Vietnam how short a distance separates the individualist from the egotist, and how neither can match the strength of a community united to serve a cause greater than self-interest. I have not forgotten the lesson, although some of my detractors might accuse me of lately avoiding its practical implications and I have enough self-doubt to worry that they are occasionally right. I am not, as some would have it, a loner. On the contrary, I am almost constantly surrounded by people, and I would not have it any other way. I find little peace in solitude. The restlessness that has always harassed me produces only uneasiness when I am alone. I need company, my family, my friends, my staff to find a useful occupation for my energy. Yet, despite having a sociable nature, I often stray from certain conventions of the society in which I voluntarily sought membership. In too many instances, with more zeal than circumstances warrant, my expressions of independence reveal nothing more substantial than an instinctive resistance to institutional customs that strike me as empty gestures of submission. I have an acute, much too acute, sensitivity to abuses of authority, which always questions and often misinterprets, sometimes absurdly so, practical exercises of organizational leadership. Occasionally, when the Senate Majority Leader finds it useful to have the attention of all ninety-nine of his colleagues, he will summon us to the Senate chamber by ordering a roll-call vote on a motion to instruct the sergeant-at-arms to request the presence of absent senators. Sometimes, but very rarely, the instruction will be to compel our attendance. In either instance, fearing the exercise is an unwarranted infringement on my liberty, I vote against the motion. Of course the leader's purpose has been served, since the vote, whether it be yea or nay, requires that I come to the chamber to cast it. Nor would I purposely begrudge the leader my presence whenever he requires it. It's just the idea of granting the sergeant-at-arms the authority to make me come that bothers me. I know it's a trivial manner, and my behavior might appear eccentric, but I find it hard to do otherwise. In other, more important matters, I have also found it necessary, from time to time, to take a position or a course of action that puts me in conflict with my leaders and with the collected wisdom of my party they represent. I hope I have done so for better reason than because I've mistaken contrariness for self-respect. I enjoy my work and am grateful for the honor of serving in the United States Senate. There are many people in Congress and in the rest of government who are smarter, wiser, and more capable than I am. To be in their company is a privilege and a first-rate education.
Many who have served here have been an inspiration to me, and their example offers instruction in the obligations of public duty to anyone fortunate to serve in the same capacity. All the more reason to take better care to show my appreciation for this institution and the men and women who serve here. But I'm known more for my criticism than my admiration of the contemporary practice of political leadership. That is a failing I hope to correct in this book, which I intend to be an honest look at events from my career that balances criticism with tribute to the patriotism and conscientiousness of public servants whose example makes me all too aware of my own shortcomings. I do not want any criticism implied or expressed in this book to leave the reader with the impression that public service is anything less than an honorable profession.